0: Welcome to Commission Ed, the Air Force Officer Podcast. Here we explore the training and development of America's leaders in the application of air power and the profession of arms. The views expressed are those of the hosts and do not reflect the official policy or position of the United States Air Force, Department of Defense, or the U.S. government.
1: Welcome back to another episode of Commission Ed, the Air Force Officer Podcast. I am Colin Slade, and over there is Major Greg Carter. Welcome, Greg. We are happy to have you here on the podcast. As listeners to this podcast may know, you are our first interview. Thanks for being our guinea pig on this.
2: It's my pleasure. i um I'm willing to do whatever it takes to uh get some good information out to the folks that are listening,
1: yeah, we really appreciate you taking the time and also making the trek out here to Utah, not the a vacation paradise, but you know Utah's a nice place to visit once in a while.
2: yeah, it's a good place to be uh surprise we had uh we've had snow and cold and rain the whole time, but hey, we still got beautiful mountains.
1: That's right, all right, Greg. Let's get right into it. People don't want to hear from me as much as they want to hear from you, so let's turn the the microphones over to you, let you talk about who you are, where you're from, how you decided to join the Air Force, what it is that you do in the Air Force, where you went to college, those sorts of things. Why don't you take it away?
2: Well, just to give you a little bit of background, I was raised in the suburbs of Minneapolis, Minnesota. I'm the oldest of six children. And, you know, pretty average upbringing, nothing special. Tried my best to get through school and get out into the world. After graduating high school, I I did one semester of college. Was more interested in earning money and working. So I did that for a few years. And then in 2003, we went to war with Iraq. And when I saw that there was a lot of media coverage at the time of our troops over there engaging in battle and i hadn't had a lot of exposure to the military prior to that time i had i think i had heard from a junior rotc commander at one time about his program but i just kind of had this desire to go do my part as you know i had experienced 911 and i had our country was kind of in a little bit of turmoil having gone to afghanistan and so i kind of felt this need to to do my part at the time i was 22 years old i was working at a bank as a loan officer selling money to people and it wasn't very fulfilling at all and so one day i was just eating lunch taking a break from the bank and i looked across the street and there's a recruiter's office so I just kind of thought, hey, I'm kind of curious. At the time, I had a, one child, and I was trying to raise a family already at, at age 22. But uh started talking to the recruiter, and they said, hey, this is what we can offer you, the, a career. And, you know, at the time, I didn't have a degree, so I had inquired about what does it take to be an officer. You know, they're saying you got to b- have a bachelor's degree which I was nowhere close to. So I took the ASVAB test for anyone who wants to enlist in the military. Did well on it. So they said, hey, you can do any job that we have in the whole Air Force. (laughs) And so there's, you know, thousands of jobs, it seems like. And it's like, okay, you know, my dad growing up had worked on airplanes his whole life or my whole life pretty much. He from when I was young he started he was a machinist for the airlines. And so I had some exposure to aircraft and I talked to him and, you know, he had talked about avionics. And so I said, Hey, why don't I do avionics? So I asked the recruiter. Seems like it'd be something I'm interested in. It's challenging. But ultimately I really wanted to be an officer, so what do I got to do to to do that? And so, you know, I enlisted. I got a guaranteed job as an avionics technician, so I ended up working on F-16s for a few years. But the whole time I I was outside of work, I was taking classes so I could become an officer. I didn't know exactly how that path was going to work out, but I knew that was the goal. Um, But in the meantime, the recruiter was telling me, You know, I could support my family with an airman's wages. I was like, okay, I can do this. And so we left the bank, and I went to basic training. My family stayed back home. When I finished basic training, my wife ended up joining me, and so we sold our house, and she moved out to Texas. I did some tech training. And then, you know, we ended up in New Mexico for a few years as I was putting into practice what I had learned in tech school and then taking college classes as much as I could on the side doing online classes I ended up getting an associate degree and then I graduated from the community college of the air force and about that time I I was looking into these commissioning programs they have a few enlisted commissioning programs And I was really interested in it, obviously. Like, what does the path look like? How do I become an officer now that I'm already enlisted? Well, there's a couple of different ones. AECP, the Airman Education Commissioning Program. That was very attractive to me because you stay enlisted. You get paid as if you're on active duty while you go off to college and study full-time. So that one was very attractive. But for me... I didn't really want to study any of those majors that they that would qualify for the program. So I decided this Airman Scholarship and Commissioning Program was the best for me. I would actually separate from the Air Force and sign a contract with the ROTC detachment and commission later on down the road. So that's what I did. I applied. There was a very long process. And, putting together this package of information and, you know, everything under the sun of what my qualifications were. And so I put in that package and a few months later, Colonel called me into his office and it was kind of funny because they tried to play a joke on me like I was going there to get in trouble. But I knew from I knew why I was getting called in. (laughs) And so reported in, and they said I had been selected for the program, and so, at that point, I, uh, started doing my separation paperwork, and prepared to separate from the Air Force, knowing that I would ultimately just get right back in, but, uh, you know, I ended up going off to ROTC, and, uh, because I had been enlisted for f- a few years, they decided that I didn't need to do the first year of ROTC, so that was good. I I started right in, um, and and it worked out because I really only needed three years of school. Actually, I really only needed two years of college to graduate, but when I added in all of the ROTC courses, it made sense to do three years. So yeah, it worked out really well, and that commissioning in 2010, it was a big deal. And it was kind of like, finally, I've achieved my goal. But, you know, then you kind of set goals further on out in the horizon. So it's been quite a ride.
1: Yeah, that's really great stuff. Thanks for sharing that. If you don't mind, let's go back for a little bit and talk about the differences between the AECP and the ASCP. So you mentioned that you really wanted to do the the AECP Airman Education and Commissioning Program, but there were specific degree requirements that you needed to follow in order to go that route, but you didn't want to. Can you explain a little bit more about that? What those requirements were, why you didn't want to do it? Yeah,
2: AECP, I think, was probably the premier program for an enlisted person to become an officer because they'll pay for four or five years of your school and you'll be on active duty the whole time. But they have specific degrees that you have to study, specific majors. So I think they're typically like Arabic, you know, Farsi, lang- any kind of language that the Air Force has a need for. You know, if you want to study Russian or Chinese, Mandarin, Cantonese, either one. But, And then if you want to st- study physics, engineering. So for me, those looked like longer paths to commissioning and it wasn't necessarily what i was interested in because i love math i love statistics but you know my favorite subject was always geography and i said well it doesn't matter what my major is to, to earn a commission really so why don't i just study what i love and so a lot of people don't understand geography they just, they just think you know you're memorizing places on the map or whatever but there's a lot to it. There's a lot of really interesting stuff I learned in economic geography and political geography and why things are where they are, how how come the world has developed the way it has. So, yeah, really interesting to me. I had an emphasis in geospatial intelligence. And the university I chose to go to, Brigham Young University, they had one of the only geospatial intelligence programs in the country. And so I was able to study something I loved and learn about intelligence from a retired colonel in my coursework uh, there while I was in ROTC. So, yeah, I didn't want to study one of these high demand majors like physics, engineering. The Air Force does have a huge need for these, and that's why they're willing to pay someone on active duty to go study that. But... I wanted a little bit quicker path, um, uh, a major that I really enjoyed. So that's why I went that route. But if you did have interest in some of those high-demand majors, I think that would be the way to go.
1: And in order to go that route, is that a conversation with a a commander, with the first sergeant? Is that where it starts?
2: Yeah, Yeah, so at the time I did some research. I went online. I was reading all about these programs. And I kind of started the process on my own. And then I realized that this package that I was going to have to put together to go to a board to be selected was quite complex for a young airman. So I actually asked a lieutenant if she could help me out. I'm like, hey, can you help me with this process? Because I want to be an officer like you. And luckily, she maybe you know thought maybe I had a little bit of potential so she was able to take some you know spare time and help me out make sure my bullets were in order and some of those things I had never done before in the Air Force really writing bullets was completely foreign to me at the time and uh, so yeah I think you need a mentor I asked a couple of people but she was really the one that took the time to help me out but then ultimately your commander has to sign off on the deal So if you're enlisted, you want to make sure you can perform at a high level as an enlisted airman. Otherwise, I don't know many commanders that are going to go to bat for you to increase in rank to an officer level. So, you know, luckily I had been selected for airman of the quarter, airman of the year awards and stuff like that. So he already knew kind of who I was and was able to, you know, feel good about signing off on this process for me.
1: Awesome. And so let's then talk about that application process for the ASCP, Airman Scholarship Commissioning Program. What were some of the things that you had to put together for that? You mentioned bullets. Was that a collection of your EPRs, your enlisted performance reports, or how how did that package look? How did you put it together?
2: Yeah. So it had all of the enlisted performance reports that I had at that time, like three or four of them. And then I had to show all of my college transcripts. My GPA was a big deal. You know, is this guy even succeeding in college now? Is he likely to finish if we give him this scholarship? So then, you know, and they're looking at my fitness scores and there's the AFOQT, of, of course, the Air Force Officer Qualification Test basically, you know, a test that shows your aptitude in several areas. So I had to take that test. And so it's a long process getting everything in order so that the Air Force has a good picture of, you know, what do you look like on paper? Does this person have potential to be an officer? And then it's, you know, fairly competitive, just like anything else in the Air Force. In the world really is, you know, a lot of people want to be an officer. Um, so a lot of people don't get the chance. It just doesn't work out with timing or whatnot so yeah once i put in that package extensive you know basically every detail and and the bullets you know mainly was what have i done in the air force and then so it kind of put the highlights of what accomplishments that you have at that point but then you have to write like an essay of why should i be an air force officer and so the the board that meets can you know read all of this and you know, feel good about selecting, I think it was like 34 folks that year in the whole Air Force that got selected for the ASCP. But when you apply for ASCP, most people also apply for SOAR scholarships for Outstanding Airmen because the application process is virtually identical, so it doesn't make sense to go through all that process and not give yourself that extra chance to qualify for the other program because essentially they're both ROTC scholarships. So, if you did apply for ASCP, I would recommend you also apply for SOAR. But either way, you you got you've got to get your leadership to to buy off on that. And I think I actually think scholarship for outstanding airmen is a little bit more they place a little bit more weight on your commander pushing you for that program. So, but either way, I think they're both great opportunities.
1: Great. You also mentioned that in order to get the ASCP, you are going to have to separate from the Air Force uh, in order to come back into it. And I know that for some people, that that might be a deal breaker. The idea of having to give up the steady job, the steady paycheck, the health care, and all those sorts of things that that go along with their enlisted service. So. Can you talk to what that conversation was like with yourself and with your family about the idea of having to leave the Air Force in order to come back into it as an officer?
2: Yeah, that that was definitely not a great part of the whole p- process was separating because, you know, obviously I wanted to be in the Air Force still. But it was difficult because I had to figure out if I'm not going to be on active duty, you know, by that time I had two kids. So I was thinking, you know, how am I going to pay my bills? Well, having served for almost four years, I did qualified for the GI Bill, so I was able to draw from the GI Bill during those months that I was in school, and to pay my bills and feed my kids, and and then during the summer I would just work a job. Yeah. So uh, knowing that I was going to have to separate, there was a lot of pressure on that I put on myself to actually follow through and graduate from college from ROTC because what would end up happening they actually let me out of my enlistment a little bit over two years early and because they had done that and given me this scholarship if I didn't follow through and commission then I was actually obligated to go back enlisted and finish out my service commitment so That was a lot of motivation for me to to do well in in school and to follow through with the process. So I guess there wasn't a ton of fear that I wouldn't be able to get back in. It was more like, am I going to follow through and come back in as an officer, or am I going to mess up and go back to my enlisted job? But I felt pretty confident that I could go through college and get the grades I needed and Support my family with the g i bill, so I think that's that's something that people should know when they're considering these enlisted commissioning scholarships is like there is a f- way that you can make the finances work and to separate and and still do the things that you need to do in order to pay for everything you need and get through college and and I think it's really you know I think online college is awesome, but for me it was like there was nothing better than going to the actual campus of my choice and um being able to be there every day and get, meet people go to the library and just uh you know immerse myself in that college experience.
1: How did your wife and uh, your kids were probably still a little young at the time how did they feel about leaving the air force and perhaps losing out on some of the benefits that are available to uh, spouses and families during that time. The big one that's on my mind specifically is that of healthcare.
2: Right. Yeah. That was actually quite a challenge. You know, we had, my son had just been born like the year before and we had all these medical bills and everything that was all covered by TRICARE. So the you can't beat the medical coverage that the Air Force office, you know, we have impeccable health care. We don't even have copays pays typically. So losing that was a challenge, especially because, you know, while I was in college we got my wife got pregnant again. So it's like, all right, now how do we cover this this birth? Um so, you know, we were able we, we bought the university health plan and then we had You know, my wife actually at one point during this three years of college, she had emergency surgery. It was like, you know, pretty expensive bill that we got from the surgeon, obviously, and I had to pay 20% of it. That wouldn't have been the case if I had been active duty. So there were some challenges like that. But luckily, you know, I was able to do well in my job in the summertime during ROTC to, to pay for everything I needed. But yeah, th- those are some things to consider, especially if you, you have family members with like health issues or whatnot, um, because, you know, those types of things can really set you back financially, and that can hinder your ability to finish a program like ROTC.
1: Great. Thanks for sharing, Greg. So we've talked a lot about the, the process that you went through getting into the Air Force, what you've done for the Air Force, but what your overall goal was that of becoming a commission officer. So let's shift gears now and, and talk about what you've been doing as a commission officer for the Air Force. So you graduated from Air Force ROTC at Brigham Young University in 2010, and you commissioned into which career field?
2: I was commissioned into, at the time it was called 13 Sierra, 13 S career field, which was Space and Missile Operations. And so that was actually one of the choices on my list. I wasn't surprised that I got it. You know, you find out, like, toward the end of your junior year, like, what you've been selected for in ROTC. And so, at you know, when you found out you were going to be a 13 Sierra, you still didn't quite know, like, if you were going to end up doing a, the space track or the missile track. But... Uh, what ended up happening is I got selected for the missile track. So when I commissioned, well, within two weeks of commissioning, I ended up going to Vandenberg Air Force Base, California, to do the missile IQT, and, you know, that was about a six-month course. And at that time, the career field had undergone some changes, and I was one of the first few 13s folks that didn't end up doing the space 100 training um so they that was kind of the beginning of splitting our career field into two different paths so i you know like i said i went straight on the missile path didn't do any space and then within two years after that they had completely separated the 13s and the what they created another career field 13n so i'm now i'm a 13n the nuclear missile operations career field so it's a small community in the air force that a lot of people don't even really understand or know exists honestly uh, when i was working off, on f16s i didn't even realize that what the icbms were these intercontinental ballistic missiles I had heard of them, but didn't realize that this was, you know, a, a big mission for the Air Force. But what we saw was what I've seen during my career in in this nuclear arena is kind of a revitalization of the nuclear enterprise and a big focus by the Department of Defense. But but yeah, coming into the 13N career field pretty unique opportunity and quite different from the fighter unit that I had been in before.
1: Yeah, so why don't you explain a little bit more about your career field, 13N, 13 November, nuclear missile operations. Explain for our audience, why does your career field exist? What do you do on on a daily basis? What's the training pipeline look like? Some of those things in case there is somebody out there who's interested in doing this career field or anybody that doesn't know like you said about what this career field does
2: yeah so the reason we exist is to provide a deterrent so we have this cold war period with the soviet union and kind of an arms race and you know that ended early 90s one would say but but we still continue to ha- use nuclear weapons as a foundation for our national security. and It's kind of the backbone of our national security because any country that possesses nuclear weapons inherently is able to deter other aggressors or adversaries. And so it's a very important capability to have. Obviously uh, we haven't used them in hostility since World War II but Maintaining the a credible deterrent that potential aggressor would have to build into their calculus if uh, if they were going to try to do a, a, you know a, an attack or anything on your national interests they have to think twice they have to be deterred every day to to maintain that security and so you know con- our conventional forces are a deterrent. To others, but nothing quite deters like nuclear weapons. Very powerful, you know, and the weapons that we maintain today are much more powerful than the ones that we used at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And so we exist to really change the mind of our adversary and make them realize that they cannot, today is not the day to attack the United States or its allies. And the really unique thing about This nuclear umbrella that we provide for our allies is that there are a lot of countries that do not have nuclear weapons, but because they are our allies, maybe they're part of NATO or whatnot, you know, our nuclear weapons protect their people as well. So I I take a lot of pride in being able to bring some stability to a very chaotic world. Using nuclear weapons, and I've seen that we have there are a lot of benefits since we used our atomic weapons in World War II. We've had relative peace among the great powers, and so I think the uh, nuclear weapons have been very effective, and so that's what we provide.
1: Awesome. So, how does somebody who is interested in your career field become a 13N?
2: Honestly, I think it's pretty easy because uh, there's so many other career fields that are more glamorous, right? There's a lot more people trying to be fighter pilots or any kind of pilot really. So I think it's pretty easy for someone if they want to be a missileer to get into the career field. I know that the uh, ROTC started a new program where there's a specific scholarship for somebody to be a 13 November. So that's pretty unique if if you were able to get that scholarship, you know, you're basically on the path to, from the moment you're starting that, your ROTC career, that you're already going to be a 13 November when you commission. So that's pretty cool. But yeah, I would say if you're going through ROTC or OTS and you want to be a 13N, you put that number one on your dream sheet, you're going to get it from my experience and what I've seen. I have a lot of that that was what they wanted to do, because for whatever reason they maybe they had a relative that did that, and that they knew it was a good opportunity they they actually got to see behind the curtain on what it what it is and so what we do is we pull nuclear alert, and so day to day you know twenty four seven three sixty five there are missileers deployed to underground launch control centers and They're ready at a moment's notice to execute presidential orders, and so a very unique job, being that the only person that can tell us to use our weapons is the president, and it's quite a a lot of pressure. There's a lot of safety involved, obviously, when you're dealing with nuclear weapons. There's a lot to learn about, you know, how do we operate these things within the right parameters so that you know we can protect the nation and not have an accident and stuff like that
1: so who is the customer for the nuclear operations community who who, who do you exist for you, know, you mentioned the president is that is he or she your customer that is is that the person that you exist for
2: well he's one of them uh he's one of many i would say millions it's funny because there's a quote by uh president john f kennedy It was during the Cold War, and he said, I have an ace in the hole. And what he was talking about was a new ICBM capability. And so, yeah, ICBMs, obviously, the president uses them as part of deterrence because he has these weapons on alert and ready to fire at a moment's notice that he has something that a lot of nations don't. So he's our customer, but in that sense, the whole DOD has this nuclear backdrop, right? So our conventional forces may not be attacked because the adversary knows that if they attack our conventional forces, there's potentially a nuclear consequence. So that's why we kind of look at it as the foundation of our national security. But th- like I mentioned earlier, the we protect a lot of allies, such as Japan, South Korea, all of our NATO partners that they don't actually have nuclear weapons themselves but because of the agreements the security arrangements that we have between our nations our nuclear umbrella protects them and an attack on some of these other nations would be considered an attack on our on the united states and so we have this obligation to protect them and i think that's the beauty of you know the stability that's been created by having these security agreements and we haven't had a large scale war between superpowers and so I would say in in some sense we just have millions of customers all over the world and they may not even, a lot of these folks in these other countries, they don't know I exist but they are able to have stability and peace because we are providing that nuclear deterrent in the backdrop
1: Awesome, that's a great way to explain it that all of what we do in the air force and even in across the department of defense rests on this foundation of nuclear capability and it's someone like you it's your career field that is providing that for us usually we, we think of nuclear operators in terms of like golden eye you know they you know there are those keys that you got to turn and before you can push the red button and only do so, you know, when you get the phone call uh, on the red phone from uh, the president of the United States or but there's a lot more to it than just sitting 60 feet below the ground or I don't know a mile down or wh- whatever <laughs> whatever it is. Yeah, that's that's cool. Thanks for explaining it that way.
2: Yeah, the uh nuclear alert is quite a interesting way to live your life you know we would typically go out on alert seven or eight times a month for a 24-hour period so about every three days you would go out and and spend 24 hours underground Um, what people don't realize is that you know oftentimes we're driving like over 100 miles just to get to the alert facility because our Missile fields, the ICBM fields that we have, they're arrayed in a, a, a way that they're all geographically separated for for security reasons, and so we've got these. You know, missile fields are oh, some of them over 10,000 square miles, and we've got three of those missile fields with 150 uh, ICBM silos in each one, and 15 launch control centers. So we're we all you know every 3 days um i'd be driving out there spending that 24 hours but like i said 24 hours a day 365 days a year there's people on alert there's two crew members in each launch control center at all times and we swap out every 24 hours during the time when we're on alert we could be very busy we could there may not be anything going on there's a whole wide array of what you can be doing you know i actually worked on my master's degree for a lot of my downtime but you know one person can sleep if there's not a lot going on you got to get your crew rest obviously we don't expect people to be up 24 hours at a time but yeah you're driving out there a couple hours spending your 24 hours and you're decoding messages and you know, there's a lot of exercises going on to hone your skills and make sure that you're ready to do your job if you're asked to. And, you know, there's a lot of maintenance that goes on at our ICBM silos. These are very old weapons. They've been in the ground for a long time. And, you know, they have fairly strict environmental parameters and we have to maintain them. So a lot of the time you're busy with security, security, Every one of our ICBM silos has, you know, security alarms, and we've got video cameras out there making sure that these things are safe and that nobody's trying to tamper with them or steal our weapons. You know, typically not a big threat, but hey, because of the power of these weapons, we ha- there's a lot that goes into securing them, making sure our adversaries don't have access. We have a lot of airmen out there, heavily armed ready to you know keep the keep these things safe if anybody decided they were going to make a make an attempt to steal one we've got helicopters supplementing that that security effort and then we've got folks you know our maintainers do so much work out there to make these missiles alert ready and fully mission capable so yeah a lot that goes into it and it's relatively a small part of the DOD budget to to get this very potent uh, nuclear deterrent that we have.
1: Awesome. So you mentioned there are some other people that you're working with while you're out there uh, on alert. So who are these other people? You mentioned the maintainers, the helicopter pilots. How closely do you work with them? Yeah, who are they? So
2: the yeah, so missile maintainers, I'll start there. They typically are, there's an NCO that kind of leads a team that goes out and just to penetrate, they call it, you know, penetrating an LF, a launch facility, just to actually gain access to the missile and the warhead that's underground is quite a process. You have to authenticate them. So we work very closely with them to authenticate them because they can only go on the site if I approve it. So I'm in charge of, Typically 10 missiles at a time. And if there's maintenance on any of those 10 missiles, I've got to authenticate with the security, authenticate with the maintenance folks, make sure that they are authorized, they are who they say they are. It's a very tedious process just to get them underground with access to do their maintenance. So, yeah, we work hand-in-hand with them, talking to them on the phone uh, to make sure that we're both on the same page. You know, sometimes we're removing warheads. Sometimes we're putting warheads back on. We're moving nuclear weapons through rural Wyoming or Montana or North Dakota, Colorado. And so a lot of security goes into those types of operations. And the missile operators are in charge of that big chunk of geography that where those 10 missiles are you know typically we don't work a lot with the helicopter pilots we we know they're flying around but we work very closely with the flight security controller um, that works above ground at the missile alert facilities so they are our eyes and ears on what's going on top side because i'm down you know, however many feet underground, in this capsule that's designed to withstand a nearby nuclear blast—not a direct hit—but, but yeah, we work very closely with them so that we can know what's going on in my our flight area. So we basically call it a flight ten missiles, and I'm in charge of that area. Even though I'm underground, I, I may or may not have video feeds from each of my launch facilities, but. There's things that I have to be aware of, you know, like if I have a convoy moving a nuclear weapon through my flight area, I'm in charge. If there's an incident, if there's any issues, that's my essentially, you know, my responsibility to make sure that we react as needed. So, yeah, we're working very closely with our security and maintenance folks.
1: So we've talked a lot about the day-to-day operations for a nuclear operator. Let's get bigger picture what is it like as, a, as an officer in that career field, You know, thinking typical officer stuff, you know, supervision of, of airmen, the training and progression? You, know, you mentioned getting a master's degree. What does the career progression look like from coming in as a, a brand new lieutenant to now you're a, a major in your career field? What does the future look like? Paint that picture for us if you wouldn't mind.
2: Yeah, so I think that the Air Force is unique because, you know, typically in the Air Force, the officers are the shooters. The officers are the operators. And in a nuclear career field, you have to be commissioned officer to employ these ICBMs. So because we're in the Air Force, a lot of our career progression mirrors that of, like, the our flying operation folks. So we go out as lieutenants. And that's really our opportunity to learn our job and to become experts with our weapon system. Just like a pilot would be learning how to operate his aircraft to the best of his ability, we're trying to understand our weapon system, what its capabilities and limitations are, how to overcome any technical issues that we have. And so, you know, we've got our lieutenants really studying a lot and really grasping this complex weapon system that we have. I mean, it's an old weapon system, but there's still a lot to understand on how to operate it the most effective way. And so, yeah, once you kind get in the door as a lieutenant and understand, you kind of start separating yourself from your peers, potentially, and other opportunities happen. So, you know, I think I would have the opportunity to be an assistant flight commander, just helping my supervisor with his responsibilities for his folks and then you know you get responsibility for a particular launch control center trying to make sure that operations are going smoothly there improve them as you can come up with new ideas on how we can operate more efficiently and effectively and then one of the biggest steps for me was becoming an instructor so as a a first lieutenant a lot of our folks become instructors and so you start teaching the next crop of folks on weapon system topics and then we do a lot of simulations so we have simulators just like aircraft have simulators we have those we call them the box we're going to go in the box and do an evaluation or we're going to go and do a simulated nuclear war essentially. And so we do that every month and if not more frequently, depending on the training requirements. And so if you can become an instructor and start teaching that, it really reinforces you your knowledge and helps you progress and, and as a technical expert. And then, you know, as you're recognized as a good instructor oftentimes people become evaluators so you're actually administering evaluations to make sure people are operating the weapon system and you're grading them and saying whether they're qualified or not maybe they're highly qualified and so you can become an evaluator and then uh, as you continue to separate yourself and show that you're capable uh, a lot of folks become flight commanders and so you're you're leading a group of operators and you know in that position you're you kind of start focusing on a little bit less the technical aspect and more you know writing performance reports and taking care of like the administrative needs of the unit and stuff like that and helping the commander that way but yeah that's the biggest thing, as you progress is just learning those different skill sets so that it will prepare you for your duties later on
1: so the opportunity for supervision of of other airmen is primarily on the the officer' side and in that instructor role. Is there an opportunity for supervising enlisted airmen in your career field
2: yeah so that that opportunity is definitely not there in ways that other career fields have and that was kind of one of the big changes for me because you know I came from a unit we had like a lieutenant in charge of 90 airmen well as a lieutenant in missiles I might be in charge of one other lieutenant right so it's a lot different that way it's still a big responsibility because you know you want to make sure that your deputy so we have Commanders and deputies in these two-man crew pairings. So when you go on alert with your crew partner, there's one senior and one junior. And so that senior crew partner is really responsible for the development of that lieutenant, the younger lieutenant. So it's much different because you're not going to get a bunch of troops at one time. The progression of actually having someone to supervise is very slow and it's a much different career field you know we have about 200 operators at each of our missile bases and they're all officers and there's in the the way the units are set up right now the maintenance folks they have their own officer leadership and some of our support folks they have their own leadership so the operations squadron there's only you know A dozen or so enlisted folks in our operational missile squadrons typically those are the facility managers the folks that you know run the the missile alert facilities make sure that food is prepared and the facility is up to up to par and it's maintained properly um, and just continue operations and the top side is what we call it because i'm downstairs and my facility manager can help run everything topside um, so that we can focus on the weapons and anything that needs to be done there. So, but yeah, in terms of getting folks to lead, you know, you do get a deputy a couple years in, typically a year or two into your crew time, you'll have, you'll get a deputy you're responsible for, but it's not until you become a flight commander that you get over a dozen folks and, and then a squadron commander would have maybe 90 folks that, that they're leading. So it's a lot different that way.
1: So if the opportunity for direct interpersonal sort of leadership that we typically think of and train for through our commissioning sources, if that isn't there, what have you done and what would you recommend others in your situation do to develop your leadership how have you become the leader that you are today
2: well um very early on i did a lot of reading to really figure out maybe i should have done this before i commissioned but when i did commission i was given this book called the commissioned officer and basically outlines what does it mean what do you need to become to be a good officer And what are your responsibilities? And so I did a lot of reading, study. You know, like we mentioned, I actually did a lot of master's classes online while I was on alert. So all those things are good to give you that perspective that you would want from a leader to really understand what their role is in the Air Force. And then there's a lot of opportunities to volunteer, to do something outside of you know operating nuclear weapons to give yourself that opportunity to lead so even right now i don't supervise anybody as a major cuz i'm doing a, my staff tour so i just volunteer to do things in the community i volunteer to do things within the command you know we're we're actually i work with a lot of folks in our command to put together a conference that's designed to empower leaders And so, you know, we lead some efforts just outside of our day-to-day responsibilities. There's a lot of uh, things that you can volunteer for, put yourself out there to lead some efforts for change and to make things better in your workplace.
1: Yeah, you mentioned that you're doing a staff tour. We haven't talked a lot about that yet here on the podcast. And so what a great opportunity to Learn a little bit about what working at the staff level is like and how that continues to develop your your leadership capabilities.
2: Yeah, so I'll, I'll kind of give a little bit of a further rundown. After my time at the missile wing, I finished some time as a flight commander, and then I had to move on to my next assignment. And so I ended up spending three years operating icbms but this time from an aircraft so there's actually a navy airplane ironically enough the navy flies the e6b mercury aircraft and it has what's called the airborne launch control system on board that launch control system can launch all of our nation's icbms from the air if the guys on the ground were unable to do so for whatever reason, incapacitated or whatnot. So so I did that for three years flying around and doing operations. So essentially I spent about seven years, the first seven years of my commission time doing ICBM operations strictly. And then what I realized was to develop as an officer, everybody's telling me, you got to go do a staff tour. And so... I'm thinking, all right, well, jobs are considered staff. And so by no means am I an expert on this, but some of these jobs as you transition to like a senior captain or major, you're expected to do a staff tour. So right now I'm at United States Strategic Command. And so essentially the officers at Strategic Command are the staff officers for the four-star general. Well, now we have a four-star admiral. General Hyten just had change of command, and so now we have Admiral Richard. But I'm basically doing staff work and implementing the policies, establishing new policy, changing policies, basically making sure that our nuclear enterprise is operating the way we want it to. That's what the United States Strategic Command staff does. But the other thing is is that we still have an operational role in employing nuclear weapons if we needed to. So it's pretty unique. I really like it because I'm able to do staff work, but then also still be pretty closely involved with the operations of our nuclear weapons. And the nice thing about the staff right now is that I'm doing joint work, so I work very closely with the Navy. I've been able to you know, learn a lot about our submarine-launched ballistic missiles. And in addition to our Air Force brethren on the bomber side of the house, I've been able to kind of branch out and learn about some other weapon systems and how we employ those as nuclear deterrents as well.
1: Yeah, if you don't mind, let's define a couple of things there. First, what is meant by staff? So we're talking something that is above the wing level, which is the operational level of the Air Force. So we're talking a numbered Air Force, a major command. So that's what we mean by staff. And it is very typical for any officer in their career progression to spend at least one of their assignments working some sort of staff. And so when you were being told that you need to go do a staff tour, that's what these other officers were saying, is that it is your time. It's the the right next step for you in your career progression to go to a staff level. And so you ended up at U.S. Stratcom, which is not an Air Force major command. It's being run by an admiral at the moment. So what kind of command is that?
2: The United States Strategic Command is unique. It's kind of evolved from what used to be the Strategic Air Command. General LeMay is actually credited with a lot of our heritage and and why we exist and and the construct that we do. But essentially, United States Strategic Command is responsible for the nuclear deterrent that we provide as a nation. There's 150,000 folks that work every day to do these operations with ICBMs, bombers, and our you know submarine force out there so specifically you know i'm working right now in the j5 so you have like any major command and especially a joint command you know it's broken up into j directorates so j1 all the way down through j9 and basically you know everyone has a responsibility within the command To direct these 150,000 folks to operate the way that the Admiral wants it to run. And, And that's what the staff is responsible for. So in the J-5, it's called the Plans and Policy Directorate. And so we create all of the nuclear plans. You know, a lot of people have heard of the Black Book, right? The book that the President uses to execute nuclear options. And so we write that. We help make sure that the J-3, and which does the operations, we work hand-in-hand hand with the J-3 to make sure that the Black Book fits all of the policies that we've been given from national leadership, from the president to the SECDEF to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs to the commander of U.S. Stratcom. All of these leaders give us guidance, and we're making sure that the plans that we have to go to war fit what our senior leaders have given us.
1: Yeah, this is a really important type of leadership that we as officers get to do is this plans and policy development. Yes, within our commissioning sources, and we are typically thought of as interpersonal leaders, but at some point every officer should have this opportunity to work at a staff level and exercise uh, leadership in a very broad sort of sense in that you are taking a look at what the mission is for that specific major command or combatant command and develop these plans and these policies for implementation across the units that operationally execute the mission.
2: Yeah, and the big challenge that we have right now in the J-5 where I work is just making sure that when we have put these war plans together that the Navy and the Air Force are working in a way that we're not counteracting the effects of one leg of the triad with another. So, we, yeah, we work hand-in-hand hand with the Navy. You know, they sit right in the same office with us. Right next to me there's a Navy lieutenant O threes in the Navy are called lieutenants, and and we're working on projects together, and that's why the benefit of doing a staff tour in a joint environment, I think it's even, it's a bonus for me because uh, it just makes it that much more interesting, and it broadens your perspective and makes you a better officer as you go on in rank. As you achieve rank, you've got to be more broadened and have a more general perspective on things and how we interact between services. How do we operate in a joint environment? And so that's been a really good aspect of working at U.S. Strategic Command.
1: Yeah, so I'm curious now if you wouldn't mind taking some time to explain how the last 10 years of your time as an ICBM operator, then shifting into airborne operations and now working at the staff how has that developed your leadership philosophy how has that helped you to better understand what it is that you and as an officer can do to accomplish the mission of the air force
2: i think it's been pretty eye-opening transitioning from you know i was in this fighter squadron as a young airman and then we had this very specific mission on what our squadron brought to the fight. And then as I transition into the strategic world, it's a lot more broad. Like It's a psychological effect that you're trying to create on your adversary. You're trying to create this effect on them that they don't want to go to war because it's too costly. And so a lot of the leadership that I feel like I have to have is like a it's an education on strategic deterrence and it's an education on geopolitics and how do other countries perceive our actions and so I've spent a lot of time studying that and as I studied my my master's course I actually studied intelligence for my master's but I focused on like strategic intelligence and what are the effects that our nuclear weapons have and You know, what other adversaries are we going to have down the road and stuff like that? So I think our leaders, they have to develop that perspective on like, what are the effects of the way we operate with our nuclear weapons? What effects does that have on the rest of the world? And so then you kind of have to bring the next generation up to speed on just how important it is. Because a lot of what we do day to day isn't very glamorous. There's not a lot of people taking pictures and getting autographs with missileers that sit underground, obviously. It's not the Thunderbirds. But nonetheless, it's extremely important to the foundation of our national security. So so I think just being able to articulate what you do to your troops, that's what I've been developing over these years and try to iterate the importance of what each leg of the triad does what each weapon system does the airborne launch control system is very amazing because you know for a long time for decades we actually had aircraft flying 24 hours a day all throughout the cold war maintaining this capability to launch from a survivable mobile platform if the enemy was able to destroy our ground launch capability. So you have this airborne launch capability that's actually relatively cheap, but what it does is it says, okay, if you decide to destroy our 45 launch control centers, we still have the ability to launch. And so it's a force multiplier. Instead of destroying... 45 targets that can launch ICBMs, the enemy would have to destroy all of our ICBMs. So they have 450 targets instead of 45. So trying to just explain that to to folks and make them understand just how important each piece of the enterprise and what the Air Force brings to the fight is so vital. And it's really the people we have these great weapons but it's really the people that employ them and make you know make things happen day to day so that this deterrent effect is communicated to our adversaries or potential adversaries
1: with that understanding in mind of how you've gotten from where you were as a as an F16 avionics enlisted airman to where you are now working staff Uh, policy and plans for the entire nuclear enterprise seeing the end from the beginning sort of thing what would you want to tell airman carter way back when or someone who is on a similar path now what do you wish you knew then that you know now
2: for me one of the best things i've done is study geopolitics and and it's really education is the key you've really got to be able to develop as a person uh you've got to develop that like intellectual understanding of the role that you're going to play in the Department of Defense and so yeah i would say study as much as you can understand international affairs and how countries interact with each other and I think part of that that's very important for military officers is understanding history. I think definitely you need to understand World War One and World War Two and why those wars happened, how they unfolded. And I think that really helps you gain perspective on just how important it is to be able to create the, a stabilizing effect in the world. Because it is a very chaotic world. There's a lot of security issues. There's a lot of countries that are struggling. So many regimes are constantly failing and emerging. I think it's important for an Air Force officer or any military officer to understand where we fit in and you know what are we providing to our allies and what do we need to convey and communicate with our weapons to our enemies. So I think that's the biggest thing that I would say is study, learn about military history, learn about geopolitics. And then the other thing is there's a lot of opportunities that I've been pursuing with foreign affairs outside of my core career field of 13 November. There's opportunity to use like foreign languages in your military career as an officer. There's this foreign affairs officer program that I've been pursuing and so what i would say is hey maybe you should have learned that arabic maybe you should have went and taken that majored in farsi or learned one of the more strategic languages because you could really benefit the air force with that so yeah if i had to go back maybe i would do things a little bit different i might have studied international affairs more maybe did a minor in that or studied international affairs for my master's if I had to go back knowing what other opportunities may be opened up by that. But yeah, I think that's kind of my advice would be, you need to understand what the role that the U S military has played in the past and how it plays into geopolitics today.
1: If only we could all go back and do things a little bit differently, right?
2: Yep. (laughs) Hindsight is 2020.
1: Right. So to all of our listeners out there that are on the verge of, joining the air force in any capacity take this as sound advice from a major in the air force study what's going on in the world around you don't have your horse blinders on and only focus on the things that are interesting to you the latest uh, video game or whatever's being streamed on netflix or disney plus I mean, come on, the Mandalorian is awesome, right? But it's not going to teach you anything about what's going on here in our world. We need to understand what's going on here so that as officers in the Air Force, we're able to provide those strategic effects, especially with regards to the nuclear enterprise, right?
2: Oh, yeah. That's one of the things I would also give some advice in is like, hey, don't be afraid to read some nonfiction. Like, I focus on nonfiction. I know there's a lot of good fiction out there, but the real world oftentimes is just as interesting, if not more so, than any made-up story. And so I really take a lot of satisfaction in reading on particular events and folks in history that have made a big difference to shape the world that we live in today. And, you know, as a group, Air Force officers, we are shaping the world that we live in. The things that we do every day shape the world and the security environment that we have. So we need to be well aware of all of those topics and what our national interests really ought to be today.
1: Well, Greg, there's so much more that we could get into, but we'll just have to have you back. Yeah, this has been great. Let's do it again. For sure. So a couple of uh, things to wrap this up. You mentioned foreign affairs officer as something that you're pursuing is that on the immediate future, is it uncertain? What, what does the future hold for you?
2: Oh, that's a fun question. So actually last week I was notified that I was selected as an alternate for the foreign affairs officer program. So basically I'm still waiting to see if the Air Force calls my number and if they choose me. And then basically what happens if you get selected as a foreign affairs officer is that you go to Naval Postgraduate School at Monterey, California, You spend a year studying international affairs and then you potentially are taught a foreign language if you don't already know one or if the air force needs you to learn another one, whatever the needs are at the time for languages, you know, I was prepared to, well still am. If my number's called, I'd be willing to learn any language on the planet. That's kind of what you sign up for when you put your name in the hat for this opportunity. But yeah, there's a lot of opportunities to broaden as an officer and finally it looks like our senior leadership is on board with recognizing the the value in allowing officers to broaden beyond their career field and to pursue some of these other things. You know, one of the other broadening opportunities would be like teaching ROTC, teaching SOS and just getting outside of your Career field and doing something different. There's a lot of value in that, and so I'm looking forward to to seeing what we can do with our partner nations across the world and and how to help benefit them with what we do in the Air Force.
1: Yeah, that would be really cool if you, know, you could do you know, a tour in ROTC or OTS or something like that. One of those give back tours. I can tell you, the time that I've spent in Air Force ROTC now as a commissioned officer has been by far the most rewarding time that I've spent uh, uh, in the Air Force. It has helped me to develop more as an officer than anything else so far. And I've had you know quite a few opportunities for uh, direct leadership of, of airmen, but nothing quite like building cadets and future officers from the ground up. That is truly an awesome leadership experience. And it'd be great if you could go back to Brigham Young University, Detachment 855, and, and spend some time there, or you know, take your, your knowledge and your expertise somewhere else in the Air Force on the instructor level. That would be really cool.
2: Yeah. And it, from the conversations I've had with some general officers recently is that finally they're recognizing the value in allowing people to do these broadening opportunities for couple of years. They're seeing the payback and they're seeing all the skills that people develop. And I, I would say that like the perspective that you gain is invaluable as you bring that back to your main career field on your that that following assignment. They finally see that it shouldn't be frowned upon as maybe it once was to leave your career field and, and come back. And so I think we're going to be able to promote those officers that have taken those broadening opportunities and not discourage that kind of thing going forward. I think there's so much value that you get in, in perspective and experience. Like you're saying, it's very fulfilling. And I think when you bring that back, it's well worth the time that you spent away from your main career field.
1: Absolutely. All right, we haven't had any uh, good war stories yet, so I'm going to see if I can draw one out of you.
2: So, good war stories.
1: <laughs> what What is meant by broken arrow and have you ever seen that sort of thing happen
2: okay so broken arrow so yeah i think the movie actually gets it wrong the movie should have been called empty quiver because they lost a nuclear weapon but maybe broken arrow sounds cooler to hollywood
1: yeah broken arrow is definitely a lot cooler than empty quiver
2: (laughs) yeah (laughs) so uh so, really, a broken arrow is like a nuclear detonation that's potentially could cause a escalation and a big issue right so so no, I have not seen a broken arrow, haven't seen an empty quiver, but I will say that uh, I can tell a couple of war stories um one time I was on alert you know i mentioned that we can sleep so we typically alternate sleep shifts well i actually woke up one morning to my crew partner yelling at me and you're like in a you're behind a curtain in a bed mod just a little tiny bed behind a curtain and you just sleep there until your crew partner is ready to wake you up so he can go to sleep type of thing well I woke up to this yelling, and I had only been asleep for maybe an hour or two, and typically it would have been like a six-hour sleep cycle, and I was like, what's going on? Why is he yelling at me? I opened the curtain, and he's missing his front teeth, and he's bleeding all over, <laughs> and I'm like, what the heck have you been doing while I'm sleeping? Yeah, so anyways... That was a night full of emergency procedures and trying to get relief and trying to play dentist. We actually ended up putting his teeth back in his face before someone could get back out to relieve him. You know, this is a two-person job. It cannot be done by one person because of nuclear surety and all the rules that we have, right? So yeah we washed his teeth off they were on the floor when i woke up and i'm like wow man <laughs> but uh that was a fun time um it, you know honestly the war stories for a missile are pretty <laughs> silly compared to you know some of our peers going out and getting blown up with, by ieds and you know going through getting shot at and all of those things but so i feel a little bit inadequate in this subject but hey you know, one time we had a fire I had to deal with where smoke was filling up in our one of our underground equipment buildings, which luckily our equipment did its job and the smoke never entered our capsule. But, you know, we had to call the fire department, come figure out what circuit breaker to pull to quit this electrical fire base to, to get this fire to go out. You know, so stuff like that. We actually have, like, tornadoes that we're trying to keep people safe from. I mentioned we're in, I'm in charge of this hundreds of square miles, potentially. And if there's a tornado, I've got to, you know, take responsibility for the folks that are topside and bring them downstairs, stuff like that. But, yeah, not a whole lot of real war stories. The nice thing about what we do is that we just scare our enemies. We don't actually use our weapons, per se, although some will say we use our weapons every day as that deterrent we don't use them in hostility and and so which is a good thing for the world i i would say nobody wants
1: nuclear war right Do we know how your crewmate lost his teeth? (laughs) Is this like a a hold my beer story or what what was going on?
2: Uh, I'm not sure if he's ever told the whole story. (laughs) I think he's too embarrassed, but I'm pretty sure he tripped and fell on his chin. And when his jaw closed, it popped his front teeth out. But, yeah, he tried to blame it on me because he said he, he tripped over my bag. Hey, man, I was asleep, so anything that happened, I'm washing my hands clean of that. So I, it's a fun story because not often are you getting bloodied up while you're sitting at a console on nuclear alert.
1: Or <laughs> <laughs> getting beat up by a backpack, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Is this something that uh, <laughs> that he earned a call sign over? I mean, do do 13 Novembers uh, earn call signs in that sort of way? H- how does it work for you all?
2: Oh, yeah, that's a good question. Uh,
1: we actually have
2: been embracing the call sign culture, I would say, since we s- finally started sending officers to the Air Force Weapons School at Nellis. And so, yeah, we have call signs. Some people have embraced call signs and used them all the time some people refuse to use them but i've actually been given call sign meta meta so if you've ever heard of meta world peace you know it kind of stems from an incident on a basketball court yeah we we like the call signs i think it's it's interesting it brings a little bit of morale and some you know I have not given him a formal call sign for losing his teeth, but we may still have to do that,
1: <laughs> Bucky. We're doing it right here on the podcast. We don't know if he's ever gonna listen to this, so
2: yeah, I'll have to mention it since he you know his story got brought up once again, so
1: all right, well, if you're gonna bring up your call sign, you gotta tell us how you earned it. you know this incident on the basketball court,
2: okay, well, you know, I think call signs only has to be 10% true the you know the reason why you got that call sign. So a lot of folks probably don't remember this but there's this guy named Ron Artest who got in a big fight with NBA fans in the stands after, during a basketball game. Well, I did not do that. <laughs> but <laughs> got in a little scuffle, been known to be a little competitive uh, uh in sports and Maybe get a little bit too passionate. But I felt like I was a victim in the whole thing. I uh, got tackled by a much larger man as we scrambled for a loose ball. And the funny part of the story is that, you know, I just wanted to finish the game because it was a close game. And and after getting tackled in the final minute of the game, and it kind of just ended and it was... It was funny, though, because one of my best friends that's like 150 pounds came to my rescue after I got tackled, and no fists were thrown, but, but yeah, that kind of, that's how I earned my call sign, was just being uber competitive at all sports that I've ever played with my former squadron that I was in, the 625th Strategic Operations Squadron, really... Awesome heritage, small unit, but lots of good morale and a history of uh, you know staying physically fit and playing a lot of sports together. So yeah, got a got a reputation for being a little too competitive.
1: So out there in the Air Force, anybody who uh, ends up stationed with Major Greg Meta Carter, beware, beware of taking him up on the the challenge on the basketball court or anywhere else involving a ball. (laughs) Bring bring your A game. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So two more questions here for you, Greg. First one, what does it mean to be an officer in the Air Force? Obviously,
2: I thought a lot about this. I think it's so much different than any other career like in the civilian world because it's really, it's who you become. You have to become a leader. You can't just wake up in the morning and be like okay now i'm going to be a leader from eight to five it's who are you as a person because that's what people are going to follow you can't fake it everybody can see right through it uh, if you're trying to fake it so it's a challenge to become somebody that is respected that understands the needs of our nation understands the constitution that you're protecting and uh, is able to convey to others um, what needs to be done to defend our Constitution, to keep our nation safe, to keep our freedom, and then to develop other leaders that can take your place when you move on. I think you have to, obviously, you have to know your weapon system and its capabilities and what your team brings to the fight, and especially in a joint environment. But if you can't convey that to the American people and If you can't uh, convey that to the next generation, then you're missing the point of you're not fulfilling your obligations. So I feel a heavy weight on my shoulders to continually strive to be better, to learn more, and to progress as as a leader to be able to serve, increase my capacity to serve and to make a difference so that we can keep the freedom that we have in this republic.
1: Thanks for sharing that last question. If somebody is interested in learning more about the 13 November career field, asking you questions about uh, what it's like being an officer in the air force, or if they, maybe they just want to extend a challenge to play basketball with you sometime. How does somebody uh, get in touch with you?
2: Yeah. Just shoot me an email. I'd be happy to help mentor, help give advice and maybe share a little bit of insight into what you're looking at doing. But yeah. I'd be happy to give my email, greg.e.carter.mil at mail.mil. Yeah, shoot me an email, and I would be happy to help you out with anything you're you're facing.
1: Great. Thank you so much, Greg. This has been a wonderful opportunity and, and discussion. I've learned a lot about the nuclear enterprise and what it means to be in charge of uh, nuclear weapons, and appreciate you taking the time to explain all that for us, give us an insight into s- some of the uh, commissioning opportunities for enlisted airmen, what it means to be a-, a nuclear operator in the Air Force, and most importantly, what it means to be an officer.
2: Yeah, it's been a pleasure. I appreciate you having
1: me. Of course. Let's do it again sometime, all right? Definitely. All right. See you.
0: Thank you for listening to Commission It, the Air Force Officer Podcast. The views and opinions of the authors expressed herein do not state or reflect those of the U.S. government and shall not be used for advertising or product endorsement purposes. Mention of any specific commercial products, process, or service by trade name, trademark, manufacturer, or otherwise does not necessarily constitute nor imply its endorsement, recommendation, or favoring by the U.S. government. The mention of companies by name is solely for the purpose of discussion and should not be implied as endorsement.